pops into your mind. For some people, it's kind of it's some of these guys. Alex, if you show that first slide, it's kind of these wild Jim Jones, David Koresh, that Heaven's Gate freak show and all the things that he did. You know, I don't know if that's what pops in your mind. For some people, it's the next one. It's Nostradamus or Gene Dixon and the crystal ball. It's tarot cards. For me, when it comes to prophets, prophecy, and kind of predicting the future, it's, it's fortune cookies. You go to the house salute. You get your fortune, a slice of the future, all wrapped up in a slightly sweet wafer. It's hard to beat both of those things. Now, sometimes, though, the fortunes are a little harsh, but sometimes you need to know the truth. The next one, again, can be difficult. A woman who seeks to be equal with a man lacks ambition. That's a hard thing for some of us guys to grab onto. The next one, sometimes the fortunes are, they're, they're discouraging. You're looking for some directions. Don't follow the instructions of this fortune. Not helpful at all. What else we got? You're almost there. Broad generalization doesn't help anybody at all. I'm almost where. What else we've got? So a nice cake is waiting for you. It's comforting to know that. Doesn't help me a whole lot. What else we have? Help, I'm being held prisoner in a Chinese bakery. Sometimes, sometimes the fortune is a call to action, and you need to be ready to respond in some way. Alex, what's next? Now is the time to make circles with mints. Do not haste any longer. That's cryptic, a little contradictory. Now is the time. Do not haste. Maybe some struggles with the English language. Because of your melodic nature, the moonlight never misses an appointment. That's a heavy thing for someone to hear. The moon is based on your nature. That can be a heavy... But you've got... You know, again, if that's the thing for you, we always say you've got to do your deal. And if your deal is making the moon come up, then come on. What's next? Your eyes will soon be sparking. Keep them open. That's very practical. If your eyes are going to be sparking, the last thing you need is to burn your eyelids. So you keep them open. What else? Oh, this is my favorite. You can't read it. Never wear your best pants when you go to fight for freedom. Those are true words. Truer words have never been spoken. Sometimes this last one, I think it's the last one, thankfully for everybody. This one to me is a little creepy. Maybe it's leaning to bathroom humor a little bit. So uh, I'm not even going to read that one out loud. So I don't know what you do when you're trying to, when you think of prophet, prophecy, future, all of those things. Hopefully by the end of the day, you won't think of that stuff. My first hope is that you'll think of Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. Um, Throughout his public ministry, he was recognized first as a prophet and then actually as um, an official designation, the prophet with a capital P. And then secondly, what I hope you'll think about is yourself. If you're a Christian, then the gift of prophecy is open to you. Prophecy is a message from God. A prophet is someone who delivers that message. And you might, you might think of these things. You might think of guys in the Old Testament, Amos, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those kind of guys. And you're like, I'm not in their league. And you're not. And neither am I. Absolutely. But that's not the standard for us as New Testament Christians. And we'll, we'll circle back to this at the end. But I want you to see just a couple of things leading up to this. Jesus was seen as a prophet. And Luke 7, 8, 16 says this. This is after he's raised a boy from the dead. The, the crowd is filled with all and praise God and said, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And then again, over time, he began to be seen not just as a prophet, but as the prophet. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy told the people, he said this in Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen: the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's Moses, from among your own brothers. 
you must listen to him. So there was this expectation in Israel that when God uh, or established his kingdom, when the kingdom of God came to earth, that there would be a prophet who would help kind of prepare the way for that. And that became an official designation and kind of all wrapped up in the hopes for God to send a Messiah. That's a deliverer. That there would be this prophet who would prepare the way, or maybe even this Messiah would be this prophet. And in John, y'all remember the story where Jesus feeds 5,000 men with a little boy's lunch. And if you include women and kids, it's probably twelve or 15,000 people. All the folks respond to that miracle this way. After the people saw the miraculous sign, that's the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Moses, during his lifetime, uh, while the people of Israel were wandering in the desert, they were fed with manna from heaven. They woke up every morning and there was this crust on the ground and that's what they ate. And they see a parallel with what Jesus did, feeding the 5,000 with this one lunch. And they're saying, hey, maybe this is the guy. This is the guy that we've been waiting for. So the, the first thing I want you to think about, it's not fortune cookies or magic eight balls or the horoscope or Gene Dixon or David Koresh or any of it. It's Jesus. He's the picture of a prophet with all of his character. For some of you, maybe some of your church backgrounds, you're already getting nervous because of what I'm talking about. Just he's, It's his character that we're looking to embody. Loving, kind, gracious, just, righteous, all of that wrapped up into one. It's not this harsh, judgmental, telling people what to do kind of thing. For, that's not what the New Testament teaches. So first thing is Jesus, and again, the second thing is us, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Last week, the question that we asked was, if you only had five or six days to live, what would you do during that time? If you knew it's Sunday and you knew you were done on Friday, what would you do during that week? And we've been last week we looked at the first thing Jesus did. It was called the triumphal entry. That's him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we said that was a calculated move on his part. He had spent uh, three years walking around. He'd walked over 3,000 miles during the course of his ministry. And now he's, he's down. There's one mile left to go. And he chooses to ride in on a donkey. We said that was a very calculated, premeditated act on his part because everybody in the city knew what he was communicating. There were Old Testament Bible verses that said, your king is going to come riding on a donkey. And so they were looking for that, and then he comes, and he's saying, I'm the king. And today we're going to look at the second kind of great act during the last week of his life. And that's picking up in Matthew 21, starting in verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you not hear what these children are saying, they asked? Yes, have you never read from the lips of children and infants you've ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So really, before we kind of jump into some application, let's real quick, what's going on here? This is on Monday. Matthew compresses everything and it looks like Jesus walked right in to the temple and did all of this stuff. Not the case. If you read in Mark, you'll see that Jesus rides in goes to the temple, he looks around, goes home, 
goes to sleep, then goes back on Monday and does all of this. So just contextually, that's what's going on. So he goes in. If you've heard this story before, you maybe have heard it referred to as the cleansing of the temple, that Jesus is going in and he's trying to return the temple to a purer state, to maybe more an ideal state or what it was created to be. And so he's getting rid of this crass commercialism that's going on, these folks selling animals and changing money. That's, you can, that's fine. That's not where I'm coming from. I actually don't think that's really what Jesus is doing here at all. I don't think he's cleansing the temple. I think he's rejecting it and saying I'm, this, this whole thing that we're doing here is done. It's about to be done. You can, the vocabulary that he uses is not the kind of vocabulary you use when you're cleansing something. He's turning things over and throwing things out. The guys who were doing this stuff were performing legitimate functions. You had to sacrifice animals when you went to the temple that was prescribed in the Old Testament, and it was certain animals, and they had to be of a certain caliber or quality. So these guys are selling the sacrifices that the people had to make. But how else are they supposed to get them unless they bring them from home? And some of these guys are walking miles and miles and miles and miles, and some of them don't have access to these types of animals anyway. They're providing a necessary service. And the, the money changers, you had to pay a half-shekel temple tax, but it had to be in a particular currency. All of the different, many of the different cities had their own local currency that was unacceptable in the temple. So you had to change your money, just like when you go to a foreign country, you got to change your money. These guys are performing services that were necessary for people to fulfill their religious obligations. Maybe they were charging too much for it, I don't know. But what they were doing in and of itself was not wrong. And you don't, this is not some emotional outburst from Jesus. Again, he goes on Sunday night and he looks around. And then he goes home and then he comes back. This is something, in my mind, he's planned this. This is a premeditated, calculated act. This isn't some sudden outburst because of what he sees going on in the temple. And I think it's, he's, he's deliberately saying all of this stuff that's going on. I'm rejecting all of it. Most of the time, when a, when a prophet, this messenger of God, has a message, he, just, he delivers it verbally. That makes sense. It's a message from God, and you're going to speak this message. But if you look in the Old Testament, especially in the life of Ezekiel, you'll see these things. Some people call them prophetic signs or prophetic acts. It's just the message demonstrated. Twelve times in Ezekiel's life, you see this. Let me just read you some. Y'all don't have to flip there. So now, son of man, that's Ezekiel, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem. So you got that. Draw the city of Jerusalem on this clay tablet. Then lay siege to it. Erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. So this is basically play war. So you, you're drawing the city, then you're using your Legos to make siege works around the city. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side, and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I've assigned you the same number of days as years of their sin. So for 390 days, you'll bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you finish this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the house of Judah. I've assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Got that? So for 390 days, he's supposed to, he's got his little model here, his diorama. He lays on his left side, 390 days. Then, 40 days on his right side in front of this diorama with a frying pan between him and this thing that he's made. 
Awesome. I will tie you up with ropes so that you can't turn from one side to the other until you finish the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar, and use them to make bread. You're to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hen of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. So this is a very meager diet. This is what you would eat during a siege when you couldn't get food into your city. Bake it in the sight of people. Awesome. How about this? Using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I drive them. Then Ezekiel says, not so, sovereign Lord. I have said the same thing. I've never defiled myself from my youth until now. I had never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well. I let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. There's a picture of the grace of God right there. He then said to me, Son of man, I'll cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They'll be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of your hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair, tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel. So what you have there is God is telling Ezekiel, act out what's about to happen here. In just a matter of a few short years from when Ezekiel does all of this stuff, the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem. They bust through the wall. They destroy the temple. They kill a lot of people, and they take a lot of them uh, captive into exile. And so this is, a, this is a symbolic act that Ezekiel is performing. He's been telling them this is going to happen, and now he's showing them what's going on. And I think what Jesus is doing in the temple is the same. It's a, it's a prophetic act. He's lib- he is demonstrating the message that the entire temple system is about to be overturned. It's about to be rejected. It's about to be overthrown for two reasons. One is it's corrupt. Jesus says it's a den of robbers. That comes from Jeremiah 7, where uh, Jeremiah is kind of railing on uh, the, the entire nation of Israel. And he says this, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, that's a false god, and follow other gods you've not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, that's the temple, and say we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. So the picture there is of people, these wicked men who are committing all kinds of heinous sins and thinking because they go and sacrifice a goat once a year, they're going to be okay. And that they're safe in the temple and that their country is safe because the temple is a picture of God's presence and he's not going to let anything bad happen to them so he's going to protect them from their enemies and he's going to protect corporately and individually protect from their enemies because they've got this temple and they're sacrificing the animals that they're supposed to be sacrificing and God says no and that's why he destroyed the temple and Jesus is saying no y'all rebuilt it it's the same thing it's become a den of robbers this whole thing is corrupt you've got wicked people who are coming here to hide that's what robbers do in their den They're hiding from everybody else. 
that's what's going on. These wicked people are hiding in their sin and thinking, as long as I perform the ritual sacrifice every year that's required of me, then I'm good. I can do whatever I want the rest of the time. And Jesus is saying, no, it's corrupt. I'm, I'm wrecking all of it. And he's wrecking it not just because it's corrupt, but because it's inadequate. He says, my house should be a house of prayer, but it wasn't. The temple ideally was supposed to be this place where heaven and earth met, where humans and, 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 and divine, where people and God could connect with each other and encounter one another. It's kind of the picture behind prayer. It's a relationship. That's what should be happening. It's not happening here. And it's not just not happening because of all of this commercial chaos that's going on. That's a part of it. But that stuff is necessary. It's not happening because the stuff that they're doing doesn't work. Hebrews 9 says this, When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of creation. So this guy's saying he didn't go through the temple. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? What the writer there is saying is, all of this stuff in the temple, all that does it, it's a band-aid. It, it's surface. It might make you feel better on the outside. It can't deal with the wounds of sin in your heart. The blood of animals doesn't do that. It's inadequate. And that's what Jesus is saying by turning all this stuff over. He's saying it's done. We don't need this anymore. You don't need to come and buy animals and sacrifice them anymore. You don't need to trade in your money for local currency so you can pay the temple tax. All that's done. I'm I'm getting rid of all of this because none of it works. None of it deals with the, with the root issue, which is our sinful hearts. The blood of bulls and goats and cows won't fix it. My blood will fix it. And that, that's what he's doing on Monday because he knows what's going to happen on Friday when he dies. And he died to make all of that possible for us, to redeem us, to set us free, to buy us back, and to pay to make an atonement for our sin. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see, there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's throughout the Old Testament. There's this picture. If there's sin, there's some, there's someone's going to bleed, and it's going to be an animal that's going to bleed. And what, you read in, what we just read in Hebrews, but it doesn't affect our hearts at all. You know that. But his blood does. And so we don't need any of that stuff anymore. And so that's what's going on. So you see the people here. Jesus in verse, I think it's 14, the blind and the lame come to him at the temple and he healed them. And you have this contrast between what the temple system cannot do and what Jesus can do. The blind and the lame, they're not allowed into the holy places because they're unclean. No fault of their own most likely, but they're, they're not allowed in. And no matter how many animals are sacrificed on their behalf, it doesn't make them clean because they're blind and they're lame. It shows the inadequacy of the temple system to deal with the people who most need help, those who are outside. And Jesus comes and he touches these blind and their lame and suddenly they are healed, which makes them clean, which means they can come in. The thing that the temple cannot do, Jesus does with the touch of his hand and the word from his mouth. It's a picture there. You have a contrast. Jesus' sufficiency and the temple's insufficiency. And then you see the reaction, the children who are humble, 
They recognize their need for God. They, they recognize who Jesus is. They receive him and they rejoice at what he's done. And the religious leaders who are proud, who have an investment in the status quo, criticize Jesus and they reject him. That's kind of what's going on. What does that mean for us? Two things, I think, for us. Many of us still live under the temple system. Not consciously, but unconsciously. We still think we have to make sacrifices either to get into a relationship with God or to maintain a relationship with God. I don't think any of y'all are killing chickens in your backyard, but there's maybe two different ways that we do this. For some of us, we feel like before we can truly enter into a relationship with God, we've got to do enough good stuff to kind of get out of the hole. And there's a scale and there's bad things over here and good things over here. And ultimately, we hope the good tips and outweighs the bad. And then we'll be fine. And then God will love us and we'll be good in a relationship with him and acceptable and all of those things. And so we spend a lot of time doing good things to make up for the bad things that we've done. Good behavior is better than bad behavior, 100%. But it's inadequate to deal with the issue. That's Islamic thinking. There's an angel here, and there's an angel here, and each one is recording. And he's recording all the good things I do, and he's recording all the bad things I do. And when I die, I'm going to stand before Allah, who's not loving at all, but is perfectly just. And they're going to read the ledgers. And hopefully, cross my fingers, there's more in the good ledger than in the bad ledger, and Allah's going to let me in. The reason that there's this strain of, in, uh, there, there's this strain in Islamic thinking these guys who are willing to blow themselves up for the cause, is because that gets you in automatically. If you live in a world where there's no security in terms of your salvation, you never know where you stand with God, and somebody says, here's a guaranteed ticket to get in, that thing starts looking pretty attractive, even if it means you have to kill yourself to get it, because then you know you're in. That's not Christianity. It's not even close to Christianity. Christianity, it's a one strike and you're out. Sorry. We've all got a strike. But, and this is the great news, there's someone who'll come and erase the strike for you. But you've got to ask him. You can't earn your way out. You can't help. There, you, I don't care if you help old ladies cross the street from now until you die. It doesn't work. It doesn't make up for the lie that you told when you were 10. It never does. It's not the way Jesus is. God is not an accountant. He is not writing stuff in the ledger. What he's looking is saying, have you sinned? Okay, well then you've fallen short of the glory of God. Have you received forgiveness through Jesus? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, it doesn't matter how big the book is of the stuff that you've done. You're in by his grace. And if the answer is no, it doesn't matter how thin the book is of the bad stuff you've done. One strike and you're out. Some of us still live under the system that I've got to get better before I get Jesus. You're never going to get better without him. It's not the way it works. You repent. Put your faith and your trust in him. He'll wipe out all of that stuff. And then you're right with him. For some of you, that's not the struggle. But for some of you, you've been Christians for a long time. But your mindset, you're a fair person, a little eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of thing. There is no free lunch. And you kind of do penance. So when you mess up, you try to, you, I had a bad day on Saturday, so I'm going to have a great day on Sunday. And the way you do it is through religious activity. I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to worship, and I'm going to share my faith, and I'm going to be a small group leader, and I'm going to 
take out the trash of the church or whatever it is for you that's religious activity. And that's how you maintain your relationship with God. And you feel that when things are going bad, when you, when you mess up, you, 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 know, you cussed or you screamed at your kid or you cheated on your taxes or whatever you did and then you make up for it the next day. God's put you in the doghouse and you've got to earn your way out of it. It's the same thinking and it's wrong. You don't earn your way out of the doghouse. You ask your way out. And you ask your way out by repenting, acknowledging that you've sinned, asking for forgiveness, and then you're, that's it. But for some of us, and you know if you have that mindset, if you tend to be a person who is, um, you might, you keep a record of rights and you keep a record of wrongs for yourself as much for anybody else. If that's you, and you know if that's you, you possibly have this problem, and it's subtle. Because you're doing all of these things that, yes, as Christians, we should do. And what you have to ask yourself, am I doing them out of my relationship with God or in order to get into or maintain a relationship with God? And that's very subtle. All of the things that we do as Christians, we do from a, a, a state of grace, recognizing that we're already accepted because God said we're already accepted. So all those things flow out of us thankfulness and joy and all of, the, all of those things, we're not doing any of those things to maintain our status before God. And you know that in your head, but for some of you in your heart, you're doing that. You're keeping score. And you, you're, just, you're trying to stay one above. Or maybe you're just trying to stay at zero. Either way, that's a, that's a loser's way to live. And Not that you're a loser, but you're going to lose doing that. Always. You're going to lose. You can't stay on that treadmill for long. So get off of it. And that's what Jesus is saying. That, I'm getting rid of all of that. That whole way of thinking is done. Hebrews 10 says this. The law, the temple system, all of that, it's only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Do you hear that? All of this stuff that they've been doing, that had been prescribed in the Old Testament, it can't make you perfect. That's whole or complete. It can't do that for you. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? Absolutely. If doing that could get you where you need to go, then how come you have to keep doing it over and over again? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I would say it's impossible for good works to take away sins. It's impossible for reading the Bible. It's impossible for being a leader in your church. It's impossible for religious observance to take away your sins. The only thing that works is Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. He's not cleansing the temple. He's rejecting it and saying there's a new way. There's a better way. Some of us aren't on that way. You've been in church for 20 years and you're still on the treadmill. You're keeping score. And you need to stop keeping score. You need to recognize the way is by repenting of your sins, acknowledging your need for Jesus, asking him to forgive you, and receiving his forgiveness. Some of you are fine with him forgiving everybody else, but he can't forgive you because of what you've done. I don't care what you've done, and neither does he. His blood is sufficient. If you, if you are unwilling, hear this, if you're unwilling to receive forgiveness from God, what you're saying is my sin is bigger than your sacrifice. I don't mean that. Receive what he has for you. Second thing, and this is where I want to push you this week. Jesus is a prophet. We're supposed to be like him. 
So that makes us prophets also. He's a prophet with a capital P. We're prophets with a little p. You don't need to go make a name tag or anything and start walking around introducing yourself as a prophet, but you need to recognize if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. God is a God who speaks, and he speaks to his people. We say all the time in here, God speaks to his people through his people. If you're a Christian, you're his people. And there are things that he wants to say to the rest of us through you. And you need to own that. It's a privilege and it's a responsibility. You don't have to turn into some circus sideshow freak. You don't have to lay on your side for 390 days. You don't have to shave your head, I don't think. You don't have to do any. But you have to make yourself available. You need to begin to ask the Lord to speak to you about, I would say, particularly your primary relationships. Let's start there with people you already love. That'll keep you, hopefully, from becoming judgmental because you don't want to do that. Some people want to hear God tell us what we want to hear is him ripping somebody else up. They're wrong about this and they should have done this. That's not how he works most of the time. 1 Corinthians 14 says this. It's a whole chapter on prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And then verse 3. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening. That's a construction word. Build up. Think about building a house. Encouragement. That's a legal word. Making an appeal to somebody. to Whether that's to change their behavior or to pursue God. And comfort. That's a family word. You know what that means. Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. This is not about predicting the future or telling people what to do. It's not about forming some little cult around yourself. It's about building up other people, encouraging them, strengthening them, comforting them. You can, who doesn't want that? And that, for all of us, that's our role in the body of Christ. Whether you feel gifted in that area or not is irrelevant. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. That means you can hear God. And all a prophecy is is a message from God. And all a prophet is is someone who delivers the message. So once you deliver the message... You're functioning as a prophet. And that's available to all of us. You're not predicting the future. You're not telling people what to do. You are absolutely not speaking in King James Version English. Y'all remember, y'all, we all in school when people used to frog, you hit folks in the shoulder. If you start speaking in King James Version English, around, I'm going to frog you hard. If I hear any of you say verily, you're out. Any, thee, thou, thine, no. Anything that it, wherefore, whence, thence, hence, no. You don't talk like that. God doesn't talk like that anymore. He might have in England in 1612, but it's not how he speaks now. He speaks in the language, this is how he talks. So don't start acting that way. Don't say, thus saith the Lord, I'm going to frog you. Don't. I'm, I'm not playing. We're not, that's not what we're doing here. All that does is put a distance between you and the person you're talking to, and it's sep- it, they, they lose the, they lose the message. Because, well, one, they're trying to get it translated, and the other, it, it, it sets you up above them. Like, that's not how you normally talk, so why are you suddenly talking that way? It's not helpful. First Thessalonians, I think, 5 says, don't treat prophecies with contempt. Get rid of the evil. Hold on to the good. It's the job of the person who's receiving, who's hearing, to figure out, does this fit? Is, how does this fit? 
That's not your job as the prophet or the messenger. And if you start dropping all of this, thus saith the Lord stuff, it makes it very difficult for people to say, you know what, you're just wrong. Because it makes it sound like they're saying God's wrong. So pull yourself out of the equation. And just talk like a regular person. And say, hey, I was thinking about you this week, and this is the thought that ran through my mind. I was praying for you, and this was the picture that I had. I thought about this Bible verse when I was thinking of you this morning. That's it. Not fancy at all. Some of you, part of your job is you review people. But my, pray five minutes before they walk in the door. You don't have to take an hour, five minutes. God, how do you see this person? Anything you want to say to them. And just and weave it into your review. Parents, for your kids, five minutes in the morning before all chaos breaks loose. Anything for my kids this morning, Lord? How do you see them? I know what I want for them. I know what I see in them. What about you? You will not have to worry about your kids' self-esteem if you speak this kind of stuff into them. And it will be based on something solid, not based on the fact that they play a sport and nobody keeps score, so everybody's a winner. It'll be based on the realities of what God wants for them. You'll, you won't have to worry about your kids. If you'll ask God, what do you think about them? And you'll just weave that into your day. Begin to sow those seeds into your kids' hearts. Spouses, what if husbands and wives, five minutes, how do I encourage her today? How do I encourage him? Is there something he needs to hear from you? He doesn't need to hear nagging from me. She doesn't need to be run down for me. Or she doesn't even necessarily need to be encouraged by me. Tell her that was a great meal. Maybe she needs something more substantial tonight. Will you show me how you see her? Begin to speak that way. Your friends, all of you have friends that you, who need, they don't just need to hear from you, they need to hear from their father. Whether they know he's their father or not. It can pivot people. The reason we're here is because someone did this for me. When we first started this church, we were part of a church called Riverstone on the corner of Barrett Parkway and Stylesboro Road. And they were moving out there from a, a place we rented on uh, South Marietta Parkway. And we kind of felt like we needed to be here, but it was so close to Riverstone, we didn't know if it made sense. And we were wrestling around with where we needed to be. And these two people, their name was Blake and Tracy, I wouldn't know them if they walked in the room, happened to be at Riverstone one Sunday morning, and they were praying for people. And I went up and just said, will you pray for me? I'm part of a group that's starting a church in the next 6 to 12 months. That's all I said. And this girl, Tracy, said, I think you need to plant a church from the soil that you grew up in. And this is the soil that I grew up in. And that sealed it for everybody. You're sitting in this room because somebody shared something that made no sense to her but spoke right to where I was. You don't have to hit a home run every time. That's not the point. The point is to take ownership of the fact that as a Christian, you can hear God. And there are things he wants to say to you, and they're not just for you. They're for other people. And if you'll intentionally begin to pray, and again, you don't have to take an hour, and it doesn't have to be, you don't have to give people a dissertation. You can give them a bumper sticker. If it's from the Lord, it resonates, and it's all they need. Y'all know the story of Gideon. It's in Judges 6 and 7. Gideon is an, is an Israelite, and they're living under a time. They're oppressed by the Midianites. The Midianites are this kind of marauding army, and they're, they're bullies. Every harvest season, they invade the Israelite land and eat all their crops, and all the Israelites go hide in caves, and then the Midianites leave, and the Israelites come out and pick up the scraps. And so Gideon is there, and 
He's threshing wheat in a wine press. That's not where you thresh wheat. You thresh it out in the open. He's a sissy. He's hiding in this wine press. And an angel appears and says, you're a mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, hey, not me. I'm the least and the last in my clan, and my clan is the least and the last in all of Israel. And the angel says, no, you're a mighty warrior. Give me a sign. Hold on one second. Gideon goes and gets a, some bread and takes it to this angel and puts it on a rock, and the angel touches it with his staff, and the whole thing burns up, and then the angel floats up into heaven in the smoke. Sounds like a sign to me. Gideon goes home, and he, you know, the Lord says, you need to cut down your, this Asherah pole. It's this pole that was used in pagan worship. He's just seen this miraculous sign, and so what does the mighty warrior do? Waits till everybody falls asleep and goes and cuts it down because he's scared. Wakes up in the morning, hey, who cut it down? And Gideon's like, I don't know. They figure out it's him. Does he know his dad stands up for him at that point? Is his dad's Asherah pole? His dad's whatever. So, mighty warrior, I want to use you to deliver my people. Give me another sign. Well, how about this? I'm going to make everything wet except this fleece. Make it dry. Okay. Gets up the next morning just like just what he asked for. Mighty warrior. How about one more sign, God? Make everything dry and this thing wet. Okay. Is that enough? That's for us. That's where we want to get to. You can call it whatever you want. Call it prophetic encouragement. I wouldn't necessarily call it that. You'll sound kind of dorky. But that's... It's what it is. It's You can see something in somebody that they don't see about themselves, and you can see it because you're connected to the one who created them. It's not about you. It's about who you're connected to. God knew Gideon was a mighty warrior. Gideon did not think he was a mighty warrior, and he walked him through that. Baby stepped him till Gideon could say, you know what? I can do this. God has called me to this. Let's go. And he delivered Israel with 300 men. And the same thing is true for you and for the people you're connected to. They're people who need to hear mighty warrior. They think they're sissies, and they need to hear somebody say, you don't see this in you, but I see it in you. And you begin to call that out of them. Again, it's not you, it's the Lord. It's their Father who created them who knows, this is what I have for them. They don't see it yet. They wouldn't listen even if an angel showed up, but they'll listen to you. Just speak to them. If you'll begin to do that, change the lives of the people you're in relationship with. You're not doing it to change their life, but that's what it'll do. When you speak a word from God to somebody, it, it plants deep. You don't have to do a lot of explaining. You don't have to do a lot of qualifying. You don't have to even do a lot of follow-up. It'll plant deep because it'll ring true with who they are. My challenge to you this week, you can have Sunday off. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Five days, I want you to take five people, and I want you to do it. One person a day. I'm not going to tell you who. Each morning, I want you to take five minutes or less. You can take a minute. And I just want you to pray and say, God, what do you want to say to fill in the blank today? And you go in saying, if he, whatever runs across your head, as long as it's nice, you're going to say it. As long as it's strengthening, encouraging, or comforting. If it falls outside of that, those three top, those three pillars, don't say it. But if it's strengthening, if it builds them up, if it's encouraging, if it's an appeal to them, if it's comforting, I just want you to deliver it. You can send them an email, you can write them a card, 
whatever. It could be someone in your small group. It could be someone in your family, someone at work. When you get really bold, maybe you can branch out to strangers, but we won't even talk about that right now. And just see. See if God will speak to you about other folks, things that will strengthen them, encourage them, and comfort them, and see what happens when you deliver it. You're not responsible for the results. That's their deal. But you are responsible to deliver the message. And just start walking in that a little bit, and let's see what happens. Uh, Anna Kate's going to come up and close us. Uh, we're going to close with ministry. we want to do a couple of things. You guys can just stay seated. We'll have some ministry teams up here in the front. There are a couple of areas I want to encourage you to think about. One is if you're kind of that treadmill person, if you're living under that Old Testament sacrificial system where you've got to earn your way either into God's favor or you have to earn your way in order to maintain his favor, let us pray for you about that. It's, it's just a simple prayer to kind of set you free from that so you can begin to live in an era of grace and not under the law anymore. And the second thing I would encourage you, it could be for some of you, all this talk about hearing God and all that, and and it could be that that's what you need. You need to hear something from God in your own life. And we want to pray for you. There's nothing magic about anyone who's praying. We're all trying to figure this out together. But we'd love the opportunity to pray with you and just see if the Lord speaks through us to you in some way. So if there's some area of your life, for some of you it could be as simple as saying, I don't know how God even feels about me. I've been on the treadmill for so long, I don't know what he thinks. And we would love to minister into that. Or if there's some area of your life where you're looking for direction in some way, we just love the chance to pray with you about that. And we'll trust that the Lord will speak however he wants to. So I'm going to pray. Again, you guys can just stay seated. We'll have some folks up here who want to, uh, who'd love the chance to pray with you. And Anna Kate will cut us loose when we're done. God, we do thank you that you're a God who speaks. We don't have to wonder and uh, guess how you feel or what you think. You tell us. And God, I thank you that you speak to us through one another in very concrete, very tangible ways. And so my prayer is simply that you would do that here this morning. There's nothing magic about any of us. We just want to be open to what you're saying, and we want to make sure that we're passing the message on, God. We don't want to be a bottleneck, but we want to be a conduit. So Lord, if there are people here this morning, they need to hear from you, whether it's get off the treadmill, well done, good and faithful servant. This is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Lord, we pray that you would speak into our hearts the things that we long to hear. We might not even know that we need to hear them. But God, we want to open our hearts to you this morning. We want to receive these words of life from our Heavenly Father. I also want to pray especially for one group. God, I want to pray for the moms in the room who maybe feel like they're always at the end of the rope and their kids are getting their leftovers and they're feeling guilty because they don't think they're laying a strong foundation for their kids. They're frustrated a lot of times. They're tired. Maybe they're comparing. You don't feel like you're being intentional enough. And Lord, I want to pray for that group and just I pray that this week you would drop some things into their heart for their children and it would be easy. It would not be work. God, you would just slip in around the edges and you would put something, some things in their hearts, some of these words of prophecy that they would begin to sow into their children intentionally and they would see those things take root and grow and take the pressure off of them to feel like it's up to them to make all those things happen. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can respond however you feel.